0: Morning, church. Morning. I've always wanted to try this. I'm not a percussionist at all. Is it okay if I play a little bit? of worship itself, worship as a response to God, to who God is, and and what God has been doing. Uh, We've used music and some of the seasonal music of Christmas as a springboard into that conversation. If worship is a response to God, who he is and what he's done, then that response is going to be shaped and determined by our understanding of who he is and our understanding of what God is doing in our own lives. And it also means that worship is eminently portable. It doesn't have to be here. In fact, if it's confined to here, you miss some of the richness of the canvas on which God wants to write the story of your life, the ability to discern His response and His character wherever you may live. You can worship at work. You can worship during a conversation, a hard one with a person that you have trouble getting along with. You can worship when you're hanging out with friends. You can worship when you're stuck in traffic or looking for a parking spot at the mall. Well, no, it's not easy uh, to worship, then. It's not easy to find a parking spot, either. You can worship anywhere because when you see worship as a response to who God is, it doesn't depend on the presence of particular instruments, however badly played by the pastor, or particular technology, or a particular gathering of people. Again, not to diminish what we do here, and I'm really excited about this morning about what the kids are going to offer. Uh, I'm really interested that you came knowing that there's going to be preaching at 9 o'clock, and 11 o'clock is going to be all the vibrancy and pageantry of the kids leaving in worship. So it says something about your desire for suffering. As we think about the Christmas season, there's lots of these stories that help us unpack the concept of worship. And we're going to go to another one of them this morning the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2. You can follow along if you want to grab your Bibles and uh, we can read together what Matthew writes. But before that, and you said you had tic tacs? Yes. Yeah, I love tic tacs. Do you mind standing? No problem. Actually, (laughs) Charlotte, do you mind standing too? Yeah. Uh, we're told there's no coincidences, so this must mean something. <laughs> okay. I'm <laughs> okay. not messing around. Matthew chapter 2. Beginning in the first verse... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Christmas is about coming to worship. Who are these strange men? Why are they there? The word magi, actually, many of you know this, comes from the same word, which we get mage, or magic. These were people who were ancient priests, if you like, or astrologers, who used the constellations and the patterns of the sky in order to discern wisdom and direction in their lives. Can you imagine that? How primitive can you be? Can you imagine living in a day where people used astrological patterns to seek personal (laughs) headbutts? It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. The text said they were from the east, so probably they are from somewhere off in the Arabian Peninsula. And based on the cargo that they carried, which we'll look at in a moment, we can narrow in on that point in the world. The most important detail, though, is that they were coming to Jerusalem as strangers, outsiders. And foreigners, they were pagans, and they were there seeking a royal birth—one who had been born as the king of the Jews. And that's a problem because there was already a king living in Judea, and he was not interested in sharing power. Very few kings are. And when King Herod heard the news that there is this uh, this train of foreign dignitaries making their way across his land. And they were seeking out a newborn king with a royal claim. He summoned together all of his leading experts, his legal experts, his religious authorities, and said, Now, this so-called king of the Jews, what do we know about him? Where is this birth rumored to have taken place? So they did a long search that went all the way through the Hebrew scriptures. And they came upon this one text in the book of Micah. You have it in your Bibles, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, out of you, Bethlehem, will come from me the Lord, one who will rule over Israel. And Herod heard that and he thought, you know what, that's, that's only five miles away. Bethlehem, I mean, that's right within reach for me. And so he comes up with this plan. He says, Magi, after you've, uh, after you've made your, your necessary appearance before me, I want you to go and seek out that child. And when you find him, come back and tell me all about it. Tell me where he was, because I, I want to worship him too, just like you. Which brings us back to the story. Matthew writes, this is in verse 9 now. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Interesting to note the pattern, isn't it? They bowed down. They worshipped. They brought gifts. Last week we talked about the different postures for worship and and noted how the posture of kneeling, just placing yourself in that position of surrender, is an important physical expression of a deep inner spiritual truth. They bowed down. And following on their worship, they brought gifts. Worship leads to giving. And they brought very unique gifts. I heard of this funny story written by a professor who talked about his four-year-old son who was part of one of these Christmas pageants that we'll be having later this morning. These few of four or three four-year-old boys dressed up as the Magi coming to bring their gifts. They rehearsed their lines very carefully. The first one comes out, puts down gold and says with a little bit of trembling, I bring you gold. The second one appears, puts down a box and says, I bring you myrrh. And the third one comes out and looks a little bit bewildered for a second and says, Frank sent this. <laughs> what are these gifts? Where do they come from? What, what do they mean? I mean? They're from a world that's very, very different from ours, and, and they're not products by and large that we use. I mean, with the exception of gold. Right? How many of you have gold on your some form today? Yeah? Okay, pass the plate, ushers. (laughs) But let's talk about the other things. Let's talk for a second about frankincense. I'm going to pass this around. You can smell that if you'd like. That's frankincense. Let's get this one going too. This is myrrh. We'll send that around this way. That one's very cold. Careful with that one. Otherwise, you're going to smell like an embalmed body. <laughs> Frankincense, an ancient spice, it's a tree resin. It was used often to aid in digestion. It's used for pain relief. It's kind of like the Rolades and the Tylenol of the ancient world, all wrapped into one. But myrrh, myrrh itself was an even more precious oil. It was medicinal. They used it to treat wounds. Think of it kind of like an ancient antiseptic. And among other things, it was also used to embalm bodies. A strange gift to show up at the birth of a child. And so while the gifts might not sound very familiar to us, there may not be things that appear on your Amazon gift list, they were absolutely precious in the ancient world. In fact, frankincense and myrrh were more valuable than the gold itself. In fact, those gifts, scholars tell us, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, would have represented more wealth than Jesus would have earned in his entire life as a carpenter. Here's the thing these foreign dignitar- dignitaries, these traveling ambassadors, they weren't burdened by giving the gifts. They weren't anxious in giving them, they're not stressed about the value of what was being given away. They were, and the text says it here. They were overjoyed. Literally, their words were, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They couldn't contain it. They couldn't keep it inside. The reason they felt such great joy is at the end of their long, long search, they finally found what they were looking for. And it's not just because they found the child. It's not just because they had an experience of being in the presence of Jesus. It's because they had the opportunity to, to respond. They got to be part of what was going on. In the Bible, worship is always connected to giving. Think about it. As far back as the very beginning of the stories of the Bible, there are these connections between worship and giving. Cain and Abel, the first family in Scripture, brought offerings, gifts to God. Abraham, in the middle of his long journey to a new home, was stopping periodically to build these monuments, altars, so that he could give gifts back to God in response. The Israelites would later learn to, to bring gifts to God. They would present them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And it remained true even in the life of the early church, which would pass a collection pool in order to generate resources to provide for the poor and to plant new churches. Worship always involved giving. But the question is, why? Uh, have you ever thought about this? Maybe the offering plate is passed as it just was a few minutes ago. And you think, why? Why do we do this? Is, is God poor? Is he short of cash? Is it because God, is it in his infinite power, lacks the resources to do what he needs to do in the world? Is this the price of admission? Is this a way of rating the service? Sermon's a little bit dodgy today, so less offering. That's why we passed the plate before you sermon. time. <laughs> Is it some sort of test by which we gener- generate or demonstrate our loyalty to God? It's none of that. The Magi offered their gifts because in Jesus they had discovered something radically new and different about God. I want you to think with me about this for just a minute. They're from a very different culture, a vastly different world. And in the ancient Near East, people believed things very different about the gods. They believed that the gods were easily angered. They believed they were often irritated. They were difficult to appease. And they had these malicious, dark, malevolent appetites that could only be satisfied by human sacrifice and human gift. So people would bring offerings, sometimes grotesque, violent offerings, to see if they could get something from the gods. It was basically a cosmic bribery racket. They would bribe in exchange for fertility or rain, or to appease the gods to avoid punishment or divine retaliation. One historian, a writer named John Walton, he described it this way. He said the gods of the ancient world were never the object of enthusiastic pursuit. That's an understatement. The people sought the gods for protection and for assistance, but never for relationship. How could they? You didn't know these gods, you didn't love these gods. These gods certainly didn't love people, they loved themselves, they loved their own needs. And this, by the way, was the norm for every single culture in the ancient Near East, except one. Any guesses? It was this little nation, made up of former slaves and exiles. It came to be known as Israel. And they believed in a God who went by the name Yahweh, and that God, they said, had no needs. Was entirely sufficient. God was not easily angered. God couldn't be bribed or bought out. He wasn't demanding, he wasn't impatient. In fact, they believed that God's primary function was to be a creator, a provider, and a giver. And we see that throughout his story in the Bible. God gives the earth for people to inhabit. God made people, gave them relationships to enjoy. He gave them wisdom in order to live their lives well. And then He gave them the miracle of His own enduring presence so that they would never feel alone in the world. Giving is what God does best. And you may think, well, that's easy for God because God has infinite power and resources. It's not very costly to Him. Maybe you need to look closely again at what we're doing this time of year. Christmas story is the story of how God gave the one thing that God had only one of. And it was a real gift, a costly gift, a sacrificial gift. A Christmas story, in addition to everything else that it may mean, paints this amazing picture of God who loves to give. And he finds joy in giving. Which I think is why the Magi were so overjoyed when they finally found him. They couldn't wait to get down on their knees and unwrap their gifts. They discovered an entirely different understanding of God himself. The God of Israel, the God of Christmas. This God, Jesus, this this gift of grace and life. Some of you know where the story goes after that. I'm not going to read all of it. But you you know that Jesus' life would soon be in great danger. Remember King Herod, not interested in sharing power with this, this young baby just born, resolves to wipe out all the firstborn children in an attempt to get rid of this child. It's like napalming the entire countryside in order to deal with one little problem. And so the family... Family of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, have to flee. At nighttime they pack up quickly and they go and they live in Egypt. They live, scholars think there for five or ten years. How did they live? How did they afford the journey? How did they provide for themselves? The gifts of the Magi would have sustained them during their life in exile. In other words, the gifts that they gave to Jesus allowed him to have a life. The costly gifts saved the Savior. At the very heart of the Christmas story is a picture of what God can do when people give as an act of worship. They don't give out of guilt or obligation or pressure or fear of what what the gods are going to do, but they give joyfully just as an act of worship. God always does amazing things with it. So for the rest of our time this morning, for the next uh, few minutes, I want to talk about these four ways that we can worship through giving together. Maybe God is going to speak to you through one or two of these things and challenge you with the next step in your life and in your worship. You'll find these outlined in the back page of your order of service if you'd like to follow along. The first one here, they gave intentionally. They gave on purpose, thoughtfully, strategically. They traveled hundreds of miles to bring these gifts. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment impulse, it wasn't an emotional response to the church service where they felt pressured to give. I know some of you are thinking, gosh, on a weekend like this, they're actually talking about giving. During the Christmas season, I sure, I picked the wrong Sunday to show up at church. I wasn't even sure I wanted to go this morning, and this confirms it, here they go again. The reason we give intentionally It's not because we would feel bad or guilty. We give intentionally because we believe that a life of generosity is the best way to live. Think about the alternatives for a minute. There's actually a ton of research being done on this in the secular world. A writer, a researcher named Adam Grant has done some amazing work on what he calls reciprocity styles. Reciprocity styles uh, basically are the ways that we relate to other people. Adam Grant says there are three basic ways people can re- relate or interact with others. The first the group that he calls givers. These are the people who love to give. It just it thrills them to give more than they're receiving. They're always thinking about the needs of other people. They ask the question, "If I don't give, who else will?" They're givers. Second group, the takers. Any guess on what motivates them? They like to receive stuff, more than they like to give it. They like to hold on to it. They pay more attention to what they need in order to succeed and have a great life than to what they can give in order to allow others to have a similarly good life. Takers will ask the question, if I don't look after myself, who else will? Givers and takers. Then he identified a third group. He called the matchers. See if this resonates with you. Matchers just want life to feel fair. It it should be right. That's not right. They want life to feel feel balanced. They they want there to to be a sense of uh, a, a fair interplay of resources. And they're always keeping score between giving and taking. If I give some, I probably should get some back. If somebody gives me something, I probably am obligated to give something back. They're the matches. I'm not sure which one sounds the most like you. Maybe you want to do a little inner audit. Maybe you want to lean to the person next to you and tell them what they are. (laughs) All that is uh, common sense stuff. Uh, The research that Adam Grant did wasn't to identify these categories, reciprocity styles. What they really wanted to figure out is what motivates the most successful people in the world to achieve. They wanted to know what drives people to accomplish the most who have the greatest success in the world. Were they givers? Were they takers? Were they matchers? And you'd be surprised at what they found. It wasn't the takers. In spite of the fact that they could certainly take care of themselves, and it wasn't the matchers, in spite of the fact of how fair and balanced they set up their lives and their companies and their resources. The undeniable finding of the study was that the most successful people they studied were givers, people whose fundamental motivation was giving. And so the engineers, with the highest levels of productivity, the med students, with the highest test scores, were motivated fundamentally by the desire to give something. Not only did they perform well in their field of expertise, but they built this network of support, alliances with other people, great relationships. They became the kind of people that others loved to be around and loved to support. Isn't it interesting? I find this with most research studies. They confirm what something something that we know already deep down. And how this research correlates with exactly what Jesus has been teaching people for centuries. He said this to his disciples long ago. Luke 6. He said, give to people who ask it from you. And if anyone takes something that doesn't belong to you, don't demand it back. Be a giver, not a taker. Not even a matcher. By the way, I don't think he meant this to be a burden for people. We often read it that way, an obligation. He's saying that this is just the best way to live. This will give you the most fruitful, joyful, significant life. This was a revolutionary idea in a world that believed that the gods were there to consume the resources of the world and take from it. And here you have Jesus saying, For God so loved the world that he gave. Not God's who take the world so we can use. And invites us to live in the same rhythms of grace and giving. And I have to say, as as 2019 is winding down, that I'm so grateful to be part of a community here at MCBC that lived this out so well. I hope you know that your giving is making a tremendous difference. Over the past two years, it's allowed us to create new spaces available for people to find God. Your giving is providing opportunities for kids and families to be discipled, to be in community, to be supported. Your giving provides support and resources to people living in crisis and in need. And you give more than just what goes into an offering plate or is donated online. You give in so many creative ways. You give inclusivity to those who feel just pushed out to the edges of the world. Forgiveness to those who go through their whole life feeling that there is no grace for them. Acceptance to people who feel undesirable. Encouragement to those who just need to know that as bad as they feel about themselves, God loves them still. Thanks for all the ways that you give. Another way that we give Is by giving with creativity and extravagance. You don't have any sense when you read it that these magi were arriving with their leftovers. They didn't bring the last 10%. They brought the most precious gifts frankincense and myrrh. These things are derived from trees that could only be found in very specific areas of the Arabian Peninsula. Incredibly difficult and very costly to acquire. These are not routine gifts. These are not expected gifts. These are extravagant gifts. You want to be thinking for a couple of minutes about how you can give extravagantly to support the needs of those around you. And by the way, extravagance isn't necessarily related to the amount that you give. Remember that episode, Jesus is attending a religious service He saw lots of people bringing offerings. Many of them very wealthy people. But then he sees this this one older widow drop two little copper coins into the collection bucket. Just a few cents. He looked at his disciples and said, you do realize that she gave more than any of these, that she was more extravagant. Extravagance has to do not with the cost of the gift, but with the worth of the gift. One question pastors get asked a lot, Nathan and, and Sheldon, you know this, is just tell me how much how much do I need to give so I can get that monkey off my back. Just tell me the amount, I'll write it down and, and then I can be satisfied that God's not angry with me, I don't have to feel guilty about these kind of sermons, just tell me what I need to do. I love how C.S. Lewis once to the question, he wrote... I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give a little bit more than we think we can spare. Because if our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do but cannot do because our giving excludes them. Giving is sacrificial. It's extravagant. Those Magi traveled at great cost. The gifts that they gave would have impacted their bottom line, but along the way they discovered something far better. And that's the thing that only God provides. When give as an act of worship God provides, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, you will be enriched in every way. 2 Corinthians 9. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So that you can be a giver. So that you don't have to be tempted to be a taker or a matcher. So that you can live from a posture of generosity. When we do this, he says, on every occasion. There is no circumstance, there is no situation in which generosity is not still an option. I had the blessed opportunity of of having meals in some of the poorest homes you could possibly imagine in the state of northern India or in Rwanda. And where there was nothing, there was still a generosity of spirit and a generosity of sustenance where they, they would open up their homes and provide a meal, and then afterwards we learned that they used an entire week's worth of their food allotment for one meal. It takes your breath away. There's no circumstance, no situation in which generosity is not an option. Maybe God's calling you this season to do something creative. To give with a risk. To to give extravagantly. Here's something else. I think this is really actually kind of important. They they did it together. If we're going to give intentionally, we're going to give extravagantly, I think it's important that we also learn how to do it together. Because I know that for many of us, it's such an individualistic affair. The wise men traveled together. They gave their gifts together. In fact, the the very idea that we think there were three of them is rooted in the idea that individually three people came up with these gifts. There's no reason to believe that. As a community, they traveled together. As a community, they decided these are the gifts that they Not in competition with each other, but in collaboration. Some of you, I'm sure, are aware of the phenomenon going on in our culture, these giving circles. you heard of these? Some are formally structured, some are less formal. They're popping up online. Strangers meet each other through social media. They come together, figure out ways to give creatively in community those who are studying this phenomenon have found a really interesting thing. That community enables generosity. That being in community with other people sparks a kind of generosity that wouldn't happen otherwise. Because people in community give more, and they give more strategically, and they give to places where it has more impact in the world. I was thinking this week that, you know, the church probably is the original giving circle in the world. It's God's great giving circle, the place where we give together. And again, you might want to just pause for a minute and think about how this might apply to you. If you're married, maybe it means a conversation with your spouse about all the things that you would like to give and support and do this year. If you're single, maybe it means coming together with a group of friends, thinking about how you might pool some resources and do something creative. If you're in a small group, shall Maybe your conversation isn't always just about a chapter and a verse, but what your group is going to do this year in order to bless someone else. Do it together. And then here's the last little takeaway from the stories of Magi. think get joyfully. Boy, that sounds easy to say. This is probably the hardest one. You never have a sense when you picture this going on they came with furrowed brows and frustration they were overjoyed at the opportunity to give. They couldn't wait to bring their gifts. Again, this is a lesson that I learned when I was visiting churches in East Africa, in Kenya particularly, where the high point of their worship service was what is for us often one of those awkward little transition moments. The giving of offerings was the moment of greatest joy and celebration. It's when the fever pitch of worship reached its highest volume and everybody got out of their seats, from the youngest to the oldest, and they danced, and they sung their way forward and placed their gifts. And then they would do another lap and they would come around again, right, and They would go around and around, and when they ran up, they'd take something that they put in last time and they'd go back and they'd put it in again. And this would go on for 15 20 minutes. There was joy in that. I wish I could show you. There's such joy in that. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, every one of you ought to give what you've decided in your heart to give. This is between you and God. It's a hard thing. But don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Do it joyfully. Or don't do. We don't want grumpy gifts. The end of the day generosity isn't about dollars, it's about your heart. God can always find the resources. Only you can bring your heart. But you've heard this before and I think those of you who have spent time in those final few sacred moments, days of a person's life, know there is truth in this. At the end of the At the end of your life, the one thing you will never regret is how much you gave away. In fact, those of you who have reached that place in life, when you're calling through your stuff, are going to find yourself more and more asking the question, why did I keep all of this for so long? God is the ultimate giver made you in His image not to be a taker or a matcher, but to be a giver. You can bring anything. You can bring resources. You can bring your time, your energy. You can bring your talent as people do week by week here, day in and day out. You can bring your pain. You can bring your brokenness. God can use all of it. Any gift that we bring and worship God can use it. You ever go home from worship feeling nothing has changed? Be honest. Why did I come? I guarantee you this, you will never go home from an experience of planned, joyful, extravagant giving. You'll be changed. The story of the wise men, they go back to their homes, back to their lives. Everyday business, life and work and whatnot, but they were changed. And maybe without even knowing it, they have been caught up in the greatest story ever told. And without realizing it, God had saved the life of a man who had saved the world. You and me included. Without expecting that they experience the kind of joy that the takers and notchers will never really know. Because they did. What about you? Still so if we're honest, many of us are feeling the pressure of living here in the GTA, Will life be okay, Lord? Can we give it away and still be sure there's enough worth are the risk? The pressure of raising family, the pressure of work, all the demands on us, and the time. But we don't know the question. We believe you have invited us to live in a new, a better way. Life